Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about our guest today. We're going to be talking a little bit about building, scaling, financing. I mean, all the all the good stuff that we like to hear. We're going to be talking about crypto quite a little bit here. Uh, the crypto winter, the crypto highs, the, the crypto lows. I mean, all of that stuff. And then also riding a rocket ship, even during the macro environment that we are right now experiencing. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Andy Bromberg. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. So originally from Boston. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Life growing up was great. I grew up in the suburbs of, uh, of Boston. Um, really fortunate to spend a bunch of time when I was younger, starting to build little businesses, marketing firm and all sorts of stuff like that. So I spent a lot of my time growing up doing that and then uh, you know, did that before I shipped out to the West Coast for, uh, for school. So how did you get into the whole, you know, uh, math thing? I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, that was like a really big passion of yours. You ended up going to Stanford, but how did that develop? Just love numbers. You know, I think sometimes kids grow up and like the numbers, sometimes they like the words. And for me, it was, it was numbers and just doing interesting and fun things and the achievement of figuring out those problems and solving them. Um, and that is, that certainly stuck with me, stuck with me now. So let's talk about Stanford. So arriving there to the, you know, territory of innovation, you know, everyone there starting companies. So how was, how was it like, you know, when you went there and, and all of a sudden you're looking around and, and it's just startups absolutely everywhere? It's a really special place for that reason. I mean, the exposure you get from being there and being around people who are thinking about the same thing and, uh, and the access you get from being at that university is really special. I feel really fortunate to have been able to go there. Um, you know, a really formative experience for me and, and a really important one was that uh, my freshman year, when I was at Stanford, I took a class taught by uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who um, was the, the founder of Earn.com, later CTO of Coinbase. It's an investor, is, is in the news recently for his, his Bitcoin bet that he's been, he's been making about hyperinflation. Uh, but he was, he was my professor at the time in a class called Startup Engineering. And what was amazing about this class, this was months into my experience at university, was that it was all about how to build a startup in great detail, a lot of practical stuff. Then also, Balaji always had these guest speakers come. I think it was every other week or every week. Um, a guest speaker would come and talk about building startups. And it was amazing people, early engineering leaders at Uber, founders of all sorts of companies, uh, investors. And, uh, and you just got this amazing exposure to people that were actually building things in really close quarters and hearing them talk about their experiences and, and interacting with them closely. And so, um, yeah, that was something I could, I feel like I could only get there. And, uh, and it was a really special experience. And now, in this case, I mean, you did have a professor that uh, that really made a huge impact on you. So tell us about this professor and and why was it such an impact? Yeah, well, the other interesting thing about this class that I took, not to go too deeply into this class, but um, there was uh, it was all about building startups and, and how to do that in practice. And it was, it was kind of a computer science oriented class. So really about the coding and techniques required in building startups. There was a hackathon every Thursday where every Thursday, Everyone came together in the engineering building and worked on some project they were going to work on for the whole quarter. And there was a group of seven of us that every Thursday went to this hackathon at 6 p.m. in the engineering building and stayed until 
6 a.m. the next morning. And we're working on these, these projects the whole time. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun. And the amazing thing was that Balaji, this professor, stayed with us the whole time. So every Thursday, he was up all night with us, working on these projects and helping us and giving us pointers. And at the end of that quarter, uh, we had so much fun building these things. And we were all like, man, we really want to keep spending more time together and working on stuff and, and thinking about things. And Balaji, with all of his foresight, which he has in, in spades, uh, said to us, well, let's, let's turn this group of seven of you into the Stanford Bitcoin group. Bitcoin's going to be a big deal. It's going to be really important. Uh, this was in 2012. Um, and he said, this is going to be a, a, a big deal. We should be, study it academically. And, uh, and, you know, the group of seven of us were at that point a little skeptical. I think we were like, eh, maybe this Bitcoin thing will be a big deal. We're not really sure. But Bology kind of pounded the table and said, listen, Bitcoin's going to be a big deal. It's going to matter. You're going to want to be involved. Let's start a group and study it. And so that group of seven of us, plus Bology and another professor named BJ Pandey, um, started the Stanford Bitcoin group in 2012 and spent a couple of years doing academic research, building projects, doing a lot of advocacy work, running up and down Sand Hill Road, pitching, uh, pitching Bitcoin to people. Um, and that was a really formative experience for me. It got me into the crypto industry, which then um, has, has been meaningful throughout my career. Um, but also it's just a fascinating experience to be involved in, in the early days or early-ish days of that, uh, of that technology. So what was it like when, when because this was 2012, I mean, it was not as adopted as, as, as nowadays. Everyone, you know, you ask them, hey, have you heard about Bitcoin? And, and everyone, you know, has heard of it. But back in 2012, I mean, not a lot of people. So what was it like, you know, writing, you know, Bitcoin, you know, at that point? And, and what was the industry like? It was really fun. It was a really small industry. Like everyone knew each other, small set of people. Um, and so we got to know a lot of people, and many of which are still working in crypto today or working in Bitcoin today. Um, and it's been cool to see now a decade of those relationships um, build since the early days, everyone kind of recognizing that, that you were there, you were there early. And that's been, that's been a lot of fun. Um, I will say one, one of the most fun things we did, which I alluded to was, uh, as this kind of Stanford Bitcoin group, we would go to Sand Hill Road, which was you know, right next to where our university was. And we would go into investors' offices and pitch Bitcoin. Not, we weren't looking for investment ourselves, but we were just looking to pitch this technology and saying, hey, you should be looking at Bitcoin. You should be funding Bitcoin startups. Maybe you should be buying Bitcoin yourself. Uh, and it was fascinating going and pitching VCs on Bitcoin in 2012. Uh, some people were super receptive. Some people were not receptive whatsoever and thought we were, were crazy. Um, and I still get emails to this day. This is now 10 years ago. I still get emails to this day from investors that we pitched when we were students and coming back and, you know, wanting to talk about crypto again. Um, and so it was, a, it was a really cool experience to be able to do that back then when it was you know, such a nascent, nascent technology. Well, probably now they're calling back to see if you can invite them out for lunch eh? because <laughs> they had such a mistake. Eh? So now you can invest in them eh? versus the other way around. So, so good stuff. So now in your case, you know, you actually started your first company while there, Sidewire. So how did the whole idea of Sidewire come about? And, uh, and yeah, why, why did you thought it was, it was a good idea to go with it? Sidewire, yeah, was a company in the uh, media space, initially in the political media space, where we put the experts together and had the experts chat where everyone else could read and only the experts could talk to each other. So kind of like Twitter without the noise. You could have just the experts on Twitter talk to each other and everyone else reading. Um, and obviously, it was an election cycle that we were going into. This was kind of 2014, 2016. Uh, and so there was a lot of discussion about politics. We started in that industry. The way it came about was that I met my 
then co-founder Tucker, who was a long time, uh, he'd worked in politics for a long time, he'd worked in media for a long time, he'd worked in social media. Um, and so he was really kind of the industry expert on this space and came and had this idea that he and I started developing together that turned into Sidewire. And at that point, I was kind of the technical side of the operation. He was the, the expert on, on all things um, media and politics. And it was, it was just one of those situations where something comes about because you've got someone who's so deep in an industry uh, that has a thesis about what should be built there. And I think that thesis was, was right, maybe a little bit, little bit early, but I think it was right. Um, and, uh, and we came together and started, started building it in, in 2014. Now with Sidewire, you know, obviously it didn't end up turning out the way that you guys had hoped for, but uh, I'm sure that this was pivotal for you because as they say, you either succeed or you learn. So why didn't it work out the way that you guys had hoped for? And what was the lesson that you took with you from that? Yeah, a lot, a lot of lessons taken away. Um, Peter Thiel has this line, I think, where he talks about failures being overdetermined. There's always, there's more than one reason for a failure. There's rarely a single kind of bolt of lightning that, that kills something. And there's, there's many reasons that things fail. And so it's, it's often hard to isolate it. And I think that's right. Um, I think there were a bunch of things. One, media is just a really tough business. And you see this over and over again. The discussion when I was running Sidewire, when you talk to media people was always, what is media's business model going to be? How are we going to work out a sustainable business model for media? The industry was was kind of this crashing plane and we we're trying to save it. And it's it's hard to save a crashing plane and find a way to to get it to take back off. Um, and so I think there was there was certainly some industry stuff. Um, you know, I think we tied ourselves to the kind of political cycle because there was opportunity there to grow. Um, and uh, and then of course that cycles kind of on and off and it's it's not always reliable. And then probably the biggest thing was that, you know, we built this product on the premise that um, people wanted to hear from experts. And if we put the experts in conversation with each other, that would result in really interesting conversations. And then people would be interested in consuming them. What we found in practice was that uh, wanting to listen to experts is a stated preference, but not actually an observed preference. What I mean by that is everyone says, oh, of course, if there was a place for me to listen to the experts, I would go there and I would listen to them. But in practice, most people don't actually want to listen to the experts and they would rather go and talk themselves. And that's why something like Twitter is so successful is because people can talk themselves. That's, you know, it's a place for them. Um, and so despite, you know, asking people, hey, do you want this and hearing a lot of yeses in practice, I think a lot of people were less interested in it uh, as a product because it was less participatory for, for them. And that's ultimately what a lot of people want. So then in this case, you know, what happened next? I'm sure that it was uh, a tough one to swallow. What, what happened next? So when we, we made the decision to wind down, uh, wind down Sidewire, and it was actually incredibly fortuitous what happened next for me personally. We, we wound down Sidewire um, and, uh, and did that kind of as gracefully as we could. And then right as I was starting to think about what would come next, an opportunity popped up right in front of me. And that was the opportunity to start and found CoinList. Um, and so CoinList is this digital asset platform for token sales and all sorts of other digital asset financial services. Um, it's been built into a really amazing business. And at the time, it was just spinning out from AngelList. So AngelList had kind of worked on this idea of CoinList and was ready to spin it out into an independent company. And I knew the AngelList team, I knew the Protocol Labs team who were also working with AngelList on it. Um, they were looking for someone to, to, to lead this new spin out startup. Um, and, uh, and so I, I you know, started up there and was the founding CEO of CoinList and began to run that business, which obviously has its whole, its own whole story attached to it. But that 
that popped up right as I was winding down Sidewire. That's incredible. Man, one door closes and another one opens. So really, really cool. Now, now in this case, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of CoinList? So initially, CoinList business model, this was in 2017. Um, you might remember the ICO boom. There were all these token sales happening, tons of noise in the space, lots of garbage, um, but, if, but some legitimate projects. And CoinList set itself out to be the premier platform for digital asset projects to run their token sales. And that started with the Filecoin token sale, um, which was kind of the first marquee one on CoinList and helped to kind of get the company off its, off, on its feet. Um, and then there were a bunch of others that came shortly thereafter, Blockstack, and then eventually Solana and Celo and a whole bunch of other token sales. And CoinList's model was to be a technology services provider to these projects running token sales um, and make money off of um, these projects doing so. And that was an incredible business in 2017 when we started in early 2018. Straight, straight shot uh, rocket ship. And then crypto winter hit. And when crypto winter hit, token sales just stopped. It was open, like your revenue just goes away. There were no more token sales. We had made money off token sales, no revenue. And so then Coinless had to begin to figure out, well, what are we going to do to keep this business running. We believe that token sales are going to come back at some point when the market returns, but in the interim, we need to figure some things out. And so Coinless started to offer this increasingly diversified uh, set of digital asset financial services, whether that was, not to get too in the weeds here, but a wrapped Bitcoin service, uh, exchange service that ended up being really valuable, spinning up an exchange product, lending products, all these different business lines into this really diversified financial services provider. And then the market returned token sales came back and that started lifting the company again. Um, and now CoinList has this really diversified set of business lines that allows it to do well through, through market cycles, you know, no matter how high or low they go. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And you've you've seen obviously the um you know the the, the whole crypto space developing since you know back 2012 where it was like nothing to like what it is today. 
And those cycles, I mean, they're just like so crazy, you know, like when it goes from from winter to spring to summer to winter. And, you know, also the swings are just like absolutely ridiculous. So so how do you how do you think, you know, you know, people should really think about cycles when it comes to crypto? Yeah, the fundamental first question you need to ask yourself about crypto market cycles is, are you fundamentally long term long this technology or not? Do you believe this technology is going to be more meaningful in 10 years than it is today? That's the first question you have to ask yourself. For some people, the answer to that question is no, they don't really believe in the technology. They don't believe it's, it has that much of a future. And that's totally fine. In which case, crypto market cycles, you're just going to see those as kind of speculative bubbles that rise and fall. And you know, one day it'll all collapse to, to zero. If, however, you are fundamentally a believer in this technology, which I, of course, count myself in that set, the way you need to see these, these cycles is just part of the natural evolution and maturation of the asset class. And I remember, you know, my first crypto cycle, this happens to everyone. I bought a little bit of Bitcoin, you know, when I first got into the space, tiny little bit, because I was a broke college student at the time. Um, and then I, the first cycle happened and I freaked out and I sold a bunch of it because you panic, you think it's over, you think, you know, the space is ending. And then it doesn't end, it starts building back. And you realize, oh, wait, you know, that I got caught, right? This, this happens, these cycles happen, and people wash out. And since then, I've understood, you know what, cycles are going to come and go. And if I fundamentally believe in this technology, just hang on, just stay in the game, survive, stay allocated. And in the long run, if your thesis is right, it'll all work out for the best. Um, and so I, I think basically everyone in the space follows this pattern where they start panicked, highly emotional in their first cycle. And then the more cycles you see, you just become more and more used to it, more more sanguine about uh, about how it works. Now, in this case, I mean, you guys raised quite a bit of money. How much money do you guys raise for CoinList? CoinList raised, well, it's, it's now raised well over $100 million um, over the course of multiple rounds going back. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's in, the, in the nine figures. And what was that the experience of raising money for a company that, you know, was involved in a market with such, you know, crazy volatility. You, you just have to find people that are similarly convicted about the opportunity and the long-term chance. What I've found now with CoinList and then also with, with Eco, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is that you can find people that are, you can find investors that are tourists in the cyclical industry that are there for the good times and are scared about the bad. That's actually not a good idea to work with them because when things get bad, it's going to turn into a really tricky relationship. You're going to be sitting there saying, it's fine, the cycle's going to continue, but they're going to be very, very concerned. That's not, that's not great. So you need to find people that have that same perspective, that have the same view and say, it's going to work out in the long run. That doesn't mean you don't need to do challenging things when the times are, are hard. You certainly need to do challenging things when the times are hard. But at the same time, you just need people who are aligned with that, that objective. And then it's just about a meeting of the minds, as it is with all all companies and understanding what it will look like to work together, being transparent about the cyclicality of the business, having open conversations about that and finding the people that you want to you want to partner with. So incredible stuff what you guys were doing with CoinList. I mean, you know, definitely a lot of money raised, you know, uh, incredible momentum, uh, over 100 employees or so. Eventually in 2020, you know, that's really where where you actually started to think Hey, maybe, you know, I should 
I should really jump ship here. And, uh, you know, there was another company that you were, you know, helping as a, as a founding advisor or perhaps, you know, on the founding team, but, but not fully operational. So what triggered, I guess, I guess first and foremost, how did that, that idea, that specific idea or opportunity come knocking initially? And then what triggered for you to say, I think I gotta, I gotta really take this one on, especially when you were, you know, in such an amazing, you know, writing such an amazing opportunity. Yeah, it was a really tough decision. So that new opportunity was Eco, which I'm working on today. And Eco started in, in 2017. Um, and it was, it was really built around this fundamental premise of recognizing that in today's financial system, people's money is not working for them. It's working for middlemen, it's working for all sorts of other people, but it is not working for those people. And we saw crypto and also just fintech innovation that was happening as a path to putting people's money back to work for them and building really compelling financial products that were much more aligned with their users. We can talk more about what that means. But I helped start Eco in 2017. I helped assemble the kind of founding team, put it in motion, got it started with, with uh, several other uh, friends and colleagues. And then I was running CoinList. And throughout that time running CoinList, I was advising Eco, I was working with Eco. Um, and in 2020, like you said, I left CoinList and went to Eco. What did not happen was um, I wasn't sitting at CoinList thinking I need to jump ship. In fact, CoinList was going great. And I definitely was not thinking about jumping ship. But the Eco team came to me and said, hey, we really think you should come and, and take the reins here. We think you should come and be CEO of this company and run it. You've been advising now for a few years, but we think you should do it. And you know, initially, of course, I was like, I'm good. CoinList is doing great. I'm happy here. But the more I dug in, the more convicted I was that running Eco was actually the right thing for me to do. And that's, that was for a few reasons. First, I just fundamentally believe that the power of financial technology, whether it's crypto or other financial technology, is to put people's money back to work for them. That is, that is the thing. It's to build more aligned and better financial systems than what we have today. And that's what Eco was working on. And so I had incredible mission alignment with this project. The team was incredible loved the team, had been working with them for years, wanted to spend more time with them. Um, and what was happening in 2020 to Eco was that it was leaving the R&D phase and entering into just this operational phase. It had kind of figured out as a company what it needed to build. It had early signals of product market fit, and it was time to go and build the thing out and operationalize it. And that's the stuff that I'm really good at. And so it was one of these situations where I'm looking at it and saying, all right, huge mission alignment. I love the team. There's signs of it working right now. And what they need is my exact set of skills. And when all of those things come together, it's too hard to say no. It just made too much sense. And Coinless was in a really good spot. I had helped build out an incredible team that I had total confidence could continue to take that business and continue to grow it. Um, and so it was a really tough decision. But ultimately, sometimes just something so compelling like that lands in your lap and you, you have to say yes. And it feels like, like life's work that you need to need to go and work on. And that's how I ended up taking the gig. What happened next? Well, Eco then got on, got on its own rocket ship, which was really exciting. Uh, I joined in October of 2020. Uh, we were building up the product, which is this really simple all-in-one uh, consumer financial product that allows you to take the things that you do in your existing financial life and do them all in one place. What I mean by that is that if you have, if you're a normal person like me, you've got 12 financial apps on your phone. You've got your bank, two credit card apps, Cash App, Venmo, Coinbase, Robinhood, you've got all these products. Money's moving between them all the time. It's a huge pain. 
you're not benefiting from compounding rewards in them. And Eco puts that all in one place. We're building towards that and gives you these compounding rewards and also enables this kind of open rewards currency that we can talk more about. And so in 2020, we were just starting to bring that to market. Um, we needed to raise money. So we went out and uh, raised an amazing round led by Andreessen Horowitz Crypto, their fund, um, which, was, which was really great. And then just a few months thereafter, raised another round uh, led by El Catartan and Activant Capital, also amazing partners, um, and just built out the team and built out the product and started to grow really quickly. Um, and it was just a really special time that you know, the market was strong. We had these, these product market fit signals and it was time to hit the gas and, and go. And so in a matter of, matter of you know, six months or so, we raised $85 million. We built up the team. We started to really operationalize and commercialize the product. And we've been on that, on that path ever since. And how much capital have you guys raised to date? We've raised just about $100 million, just under $100 million. Yeah. Got it. You were, you were talking about, uh, uh, you know, one thing that, that, that just came to mind is how has it been to pushing this through, you know, kind of like a darker macro environment type of thing? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting time. So the, the number one thing for us that matters the most is that Eco itself has been, has had no direct exposure to or impact to any of the things that have happened. So customer funds have remained totally safe in Eco, of course. Corporate funds have remained safe, like we've, we've been unimpacted, but that doesn't mean there's not market headwinds that we need to contend with and people being skeptical of new financial products because they're finding out that some of the ones they use may have been fraudulent as we're, or, or illegal as we're learning in, in the past few months. Um, and so for us, it's all about just refocusing on our mission to put people's money back to work for them, to do no financial harm, and to help people build as much wealth as possible, make the right decisions on behalf of our users and just go and execute. And you know, you can get caught up in thinking about the market conditions and oh it's so hard and you know, pitying yourself for having to work through that, but the reality is the biggest winners in these cyclical markets are those that are able to just keep building through the dark times. And you know, I've I've seen that now with a number of companies. It happened with Coinlist. It happened with, you know, Coinbase, the leading kind of US company in in the crypto space where the companies that are able to invest and grow and build through the winters, when summer comes again, it's really powerful to be in that position of having been building. And, you know, people come and go in the space when the times are good. Um, but if you're able to work through the winters, that's when, that's when the real opportunity is for people. So just refocusing on that message, making sure we all really feel that, and then doing the right thing and continuing to build is, is really all that matters. So imagine you were to go to sleep tonight, Andy, and you wake up in a world where the vision of eco is fully realized. What does that world look like? The world looks like a few things. One, every single person in the world has access to the best financial services available in the world. All in one really simple place that isn't a headache to manage, but everyone has access to that. And we're no longer kind of stratifying financial services by where you live or by your socioeconomic class or anything like that. But you have access to these, this best set of financial services in the world everywhere. That's one piece. And the second piece is that the vision of ECO's open rewards currency is also realized. And we have this realization that there's so much value in rewards ecosystems. The American Express or Chase points ecosystems or the American Airlines ecosystem or any of these rewards ecosystems, Starbucks ecosystem. 
but each of them are walled gardens where you earn value in this little walled garden. You can only use it in that walled garden. And those companies endlessly and senselessly devalue your earnings. They give you points, they give you rewards for earning, and then they devalue them. And we believe that there's a better world possible where there could be a reward system that is open, where you're able to earn your points somewhere, and then you're able to actually move them out. And that system allows you to be flexible with how you use your points and removes the ability for that single central party to arbitrarily devalue those points and change the thing that you've actually earned. And so in the long run, if we're ultimately successful, everyone in the world will have access to the best financial services available in the world, and they'll be using a single open rewards currency that's usable everywhere and is flexible and isn't devalued in a way um, that so many rewards currencies today are. And for the people that are listening to get an idea on the size of Eco today, I mean, anything that you can share, you know, in terms of maybe number of employees or anything that you're comfortable sharing? The team right now is about 60 people. Um, so we've, we've built a really strong team. We're working to stay lean and be able to just continue executing as, as strongly as we can, especially through this, this bear market. Um, and yeah, we're, we're trying to stay around there for now and, and just keep building. I love that. Now, for the, uh, for, the, for, for the people that are listening, you know, I'm sure that they would love to hear you know, your answer to this. Imagine if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back perhaps to the moment where you were, you know, a student in Stanford and um, imagine you were able to have a chat, you know, with that younger self and give that younger auntie one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Can I give you two pieces of advice? I've got two Let's for do myself. It. Let's do it. One is starting a company is an enormous commitment and you should only do it if you are deeply, deeply, deeply passionate about what it is that you're working on. And the reason I say that is that, well, Sidewire was an amazing learning experience for me. And I walked away with the time. I don't regret doing it at all. I wasn't that passionate about the work that we were actually doing. I was really interested in the idea of starting a startup at the time and learning and working with this amazing co-founder that, that um, kind of landed in my life. And that was great. But it's, it's hard to put everything you need to put into something uh, if you aren't deeply passionate about what exactly you're working on. And so I might've done that differently if I were able to rewind time. I don't regret doing it, but I might do it, might do it differently. Um, and so that's one big piece of advice. And the second big piece of advice, which I would give myself, but you can't really learn until you felt it, is the absolute requirement to focus endlessly on the quality of your team, on raising the bar and on building just a hell yes team that is exceptional and talented. And you can't overstate how important that is, how that's foundational to everything. And with every year of my life, I've gotten more and more rigorous about the talent that I require, uh, you know, to work with and people that I want to surround myself with. And, um, and I, it took me a, a little while to learn that, learn that lesson. I think that, you know, I always had a high bar, but pushing that bar as high as you possibly can is, is the only way to build something great. I love that. So Andy, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Twitter at Andy underscore Bromberg is probably easiest or I'm just Andy at eco.com and would love to hear from you. Amazing. Well, hey, Andy, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, 
either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.